Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for God's word to you. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with the rain, and the day when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the women who grind cease working because they are few, and those who look through the window see dimly. When the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. When one is afraid of heights and terrors are in the road and the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails, because all must go to their eternal home and the mourners will go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is broken at the fountain and the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the breath returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the teacher, all is vanity. The word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So that ends the journey through Ecclesiastes. Uh, there is a little section after that. Um, but one of the commentators that I read says, uh, a word from Kohelet's sponsor. So this is like, People have added on to what Kohelet says because of how sort of sad the book ends, right? Um, I hope that you've enjoyed your journey through Ecclesiastes. Um, I know I have. I know that times Kohelet is sad and brooding and moody, but uh, like I said in the first week of this series, I find Kohelet's honesty refreshing, that he doesn't pull any punches, but he is open and honest about these big questions of life, that he takes on every question we could imagine What gives our lives meaning? Uh, What does it mean to find joy amidst the toil of our lives, amidst everything that happens under the sun? Uh, We saw Kohelet as he wept and mourned with those who experienced injustice and oppression. And then last week, we uh, took on that question of what does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live wisely, given the fact that there are no guarantees in this life? But now we come to one final question. And this is a really big question. It's been at the heart of Kohelet's entire reflection. What do we do about the fact that human beings are mortal, that we are finite beings, that someday all of us will face death? This has really been the question that has been humming in the background of the entire book. Uh, This is a really big question. It's one that causes existential reflection for Kohelet, theological reflection. And as the scholar Peter N. says, It's not that death for Kohelet comes too quickly or not quickly enough. It's that death happens at all. This is what causes him to sit down and write this entire book of Ecclesiastes. Now, to be fair, very few of us, I think, dwell on this question all that often, right? We don't think about our finitude, our mortality, with the exception being when we're at the funeral of a loved one or when we go to the Ash Wednesday service once a year and we smash the ashy remains of last year's palm branches on our foreheads in the sign of the cross, saying, you are dust and to the dust you shall return. We don't think too much about our mortality and our finitude. But it is, I think, a question that is worth our reflection. If this is part of the human experience, if what it means to be human is to be mortal, then there is, I think, perhaps a reflection for us to have, a question for us, it's a question for us to ask. 
And I don't mean to depress all of you this morning. I don't mean to lead you to despair. That's not my goal. Um, My goal is to have an honest conversation about something that is at the heart of the human condition. And that is that we are finite mortal beings. And we would not do Kohelet justice if we didn't take some time to consider this question. Now, with my goal of being open and honest about this discussion this morning, it does not remove the fact that death, finitude, mortality is the greatest existential anxiety of our lives. Uh, What researchers have found is that our brains actually shut down when we start to think about our own mortality, the fact that there will be a world someday without us in it. Uh, And there's a a reason for that. There's sort of a biological function to that. Our, Our bodies are meant to keep us alive, to mitigate threats. That's why we have immune systems to fight off illnesses. But I guess our brains also fight off and put off those existential threats as well. And so what the research indicates is that our brains tend to think about death and mortality as it relates to somebody else, but never to us. And the idea is that in the, older, in the old days, back before the advent of, of modern medicine, our ancestors, this was a way of protecting themselves because death was sort of an omnipresent reality. But now in the modern world, we are sort of a, a death-phobic, death-adverse society that the dead and the dying are hidden away from us in funeral homes and in nursing homes and hospitals, and so we don't see it all that often. And so that unaware, or that, the lack of our engagement with it creates a sense of fear. Not only that, but death and mortality, it can be an emotionally difficult thing for us. No matter how somebody dies or when somebody dies, it is a loss to us, but sometimes it can be a tragic and traumatic thing. And because of that, because of the emotional distress that it can create, we try to find ways of distancing ourselves from it. And so because mortality, finitude creates fear, because it creates existential anxiety, because we have some sort of unawareness about it, because it creates emotional distress, we find ways of distancing ourselves from those conversations. We talk about death euphemistically, don't we? We say someone passed away or passed on or is passing on. And the sort of culturally religious expressions that are all around us, uh, we talk about how somebody went to a better place. These are all ways of us dealing with the anxiety and the fear that, that mortality can create within us. I remember the, the, f- the first day I was a student chaplain, we were forbidden from using those euphemistic phrases around death that when we walked into rooms, we were not to distance ourselves at all from the realities that we were experiencing. And I remember how painfully difficult that was. I felt so macabre. I felt so rude and direct talking about someone dying instead of someone passing away or passing on, that we have these ways of distancing ourselves. And of course, within the church and within religious circles, we talk about the afterlife. When it comes to death, we talk about going to heaven when we die or going to another place, and um, we find this in a lot of religions. Not every religion has a concept of the afterlife, but a lot of them do. Um, And some, admittedly, have become more obsessed with the afterlife than others, and we all know who I'm talking about. Some have become more obsessed with the afterlife than others, but the afterlife has always been about hope and a sense of trust, Um, that this idea, the Christian ideas of heaven and the afterlife, they develop really as a pastoral response in the earliest church. So in the New Testament, the New Testament Christians, the first Christians in history, their expectation was that Jesus was going to arrive 
any day now, any moment now, before this generation passes away, not one person will miss the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Jesus. But of course, Jesus has been delayed, hasn't he? Um, more delayed than I think the New Testament Christians even imagined. And in his delay, people in these churches started dying. And so they start to wonder, are our loved ones going to be able to participate in the kingdom of God? Are they missing out on this? And so this is when Paul speaks pastorally. In one of the first letters written down in the New Testament, he says that the kingdom of God is not just for those who are living now, but also for those who have died, that it is for everybody. Now, I'll confess that I have outside of a funeral service, never once preached on the afterlife. And, and part of that is because, it's not because I don't believe in an afterlife. I, in fact, believe deeply in an afterlife. I believe that our lives continue on with God. If you've been to one of the funeral services I presided at, you've heard me say these words over and over again, and some of you might be able to quote it back to me. They come from the Presbyterian book of confessions that in life and in death we belong to God. In life and in death we belong to God. There are no truer words to me than those words, that we live and we move and we have our being in God all the days of our lives, and when our time is over, we continue on with God. That I cling tightly to those words from the Apostle Paul who says that there is nothing in this life or beyond this life that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. I came across a, a quote from the late biblical scholar Marcus Borg who said something to the effect of, um, that the one who buoys us up in this life will buoy us up in the next, that we die into God. So the afterlife, life with God, it's something I put my deepest trust into. But the reason I don't talk about it all that much is I just, I'm a little fuzzy on the details. That whenever somebody tells me exactly what heaven is going to look like, I roll my eyes so hard I'm worried that they're going to get stuck. It's like I'm reading a travel brochure and I have to wonder, have they ever been? I just don't know that much about the details. I'm willing to leave it a mystery. I'm willing to place my trust that my life continues on with God. I just don't know exactly what all of that's going to look like. And the reason I don't talk too much about the afterlife either is because I think that there is another conversation for us to have around mortality, around our finitude. I think it's the sort of conversation that Kohelet would want us to have. Because, see, Kohelet and, and most of the Old Testament authors have no concept of the afterlife. It's just not something that exists within their worldview. This is something that develops later within Second Temple Judaism, which is the Judaism that Jesus inhabits, and then it develops even further on with Christian theologians. It's just not something that they think about a whole lot. Um, you'll find in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms, a reference to a place called Sheol, which is like the, the abode of the dead. It's like this shadowy place where the so-called righteous and unrighteous all live together. But really, there is no concept of the afterlife in much of the Old Testament. The horizon, especially for the wisdom teachers, the teachers within the wisdom tradition, is this life and this life alone. Whatever lies beyond that horizon is a matter of hope and a matter of trust. That just is simply not what Kohelet focuses on. If Kohelet was sitting here in the sanctuary today and we sat down and asked, Kohelet, what do you believe about the afterlife? He might sound like one of the parishioners from my last congregation. 
who in one of the final conversations I had with him before his death, said to me, I'm a skeptic about the afterlife. I'm just not sure that it exists. That made his funeral really fun. Um, I imagine that Kohelet would say something similar. What Kohelet is concerned with, what he thinks about, is how our mortality, how our finitude, causes us to live more fully and more authentically in the present. Because I think the great paradoxical irony of, of death is that it can throw us back into life. It can get us to thinking more deeply about how we live here in the present moment. I've been reading a lot about death lately, which sounds way more gothic and emo than I mean it to, but um, it is part of my work. After all, I deal with those who have died, the, the loved ones of those who have died and those who are dying. And, and one of the articles I read recently said that when we deny the fact that we are mortal beings, we actually deny ourselves the ability to live more fully in the present. Because when we fail to understand ourselves as mortal beings, as finite beings, then we start to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are always permanent fixtures in the world. And when we think of ourselves as permanent fixtures in the world, then we start to be obsessed with the small, minor, minute things of life and begin to miss the really important things, the things that matter to us. If I fail to understand my own finitude, my own mortality, then in some ways I become a consumer of time, that there is always more time for me to have. And I can become obsessed with those small things that really don't matter all that much and put off the things that are vitally important. So if I think of myself as a permanent fixture within the world, I can put off indefinitely that much-needed conversation with a, a family member that might lead to reconciliation and healing because, well, that can always happen another time. If I think of myself as a permanent fixture in the world, I can put off loving my neighbors as myself because well, right now I'm just too busy. I'll wait till the kids are grown up and out of the house when I have more time. If I think of myself as a permanent fixture in the world, then I can live my life according to how somebody else says I should live it, become obsessed with the must, ought, and should, the responsibilities of life, instead of being fully and authentically myself, because there's always more time for that. That's the paradox of thinking about our mortality. It leads us to consider what is most important to us, what matters the most to us. To not waste so much time with the things that don't really matter too much, but to instead seek that which is truly valuable and meaningful to us. In the apocalyptic romantic comedy, words that don't normally go together, seeking a friend for the end of the world, we begin with Dodge Peterson, the main character played by the actor Steve Carell, sitting in the car with his wife, listening to the news report. The news report concerning the 70-mile-wide asteroid that has been headed towards Earth for quite some time, and the report details the final, the, the failed attempt of the final mission to try and divert this asteroid. And now Matilda is on the way, and it'll crash into Earth in three weeks' time. The radio report says, Stay, stick with us for all the end-of-the-world news and all of your classic rock hits. <laughs> and then some classic rock song starts playing. And, and Dodge, Peterson at first meets this with, with indifference. He's more concerned with the fact that he missed the exit he was supposed to take than the fact that the world is ending. And they're sitting in the parked car, and his wife, who apparently never loved him anyway, is so disgusted with him, she opens the door, runs away, not willing to spend the last three weeks of human existence with this husband she never loved. And she leaves Dodge to uh, endure the apocalypse all by himself. 
So what do human beings do when news of Armageddon is on the way, when Matilda is going to crash into the earth in three weeks' time? Well, human beings do what you might expect them to do in this sort of situation. Looting takes place. Uh, some people give in to despair and they take their own lives. Other people uh, engage in end-of-the-world parties and take on all of the creature comforts that they normally deny themselves, that normal societal norms would, would, would not allow them to have. So we see all of these responses. And then, of course, there's the doomsday preppers, right? The people who knew this day was coming for a long time, they, the, the great big guy told you so. So we have all of these responses. We have despair, we have nihilism, we have hedonism, we have denial of what is coming. Well, if you're Dodge Peterson, a boring man who has been barely alive his entire life anyway, what do you do the day after you hear the news report of the end of the world? You, sit in your, you get in your car and you sit in rush hour traffic on your way to work to go and sell insurance. <laughs> and Dodge sits there and the phone is, is ringing off the hook and, and people are asking, is Armageddon covered under my insurance policy? And, and, and Dodge's answer, no, that's extra. He sits in board meetings where the, his boss says, there's a bunch of new positions that have opened up in the company. Does anyone want to be the CFO? And one person sitting in the meeting says, it's all meaningless. All of these normal things that we would, would be good news to us, open positions that you can apply for the CFO, they are rendered meaningless in the, in the face of Armageddon, the face of the apocalypse. Eventually, Dodge decides to stop going to work, and he essentially just is sitting on his, his couch in his condo, kind of just waiting for the end of the world, not going to do anything with his life. But that's when he looks out the window and he sees his neighbor, Penny, sitting there crying. Apparently, she's just broken up with her boyfriend, and she missed the last flight, because all the flights are being grounded, the last flight to England to spend time with her family. And so Dodge comes out and sits with her and talks with her, and she hands him a stack of mail, three years' worth of mail that is his that has been missed, that uh, accidentally delivered to her apartment. And in that stack of mail, there's a, a letter dated from months prior from the love of Dodge's life, the one who got away, um, the one that he decided not to marry. And so because Penny is this sort of hopeless romantic, she and Dodge set off on this adventure. Dodge also knows somebody who can fly her to England to spend the last days with her. Uh, with her family, and they, they set off in this adventure that gives them, that, where they meet all sorts of interesting characters, have all sorts of interesting experiences. They meet overzealous traffic cops who are still trying to enforce speeding laws in the, in the, in the event of the apocalypse. They, they meet doomsday preppers in a titanium bunker. They, uh, they engage in a mass baptism. They have all of these experiences. And of course, because it's a romantic comedy, Dodge and Penny fall in love. And so they come now to the point where Dodge can go and meet the love of his life, to reconnect with her. Instead, Dodge decides to stay with Penny instead. And it just so happens that the person that Dodge knows who can fly Penny home is Dodge's father, from whom he has been estranged for several years. And so Dodge and his dad have this much-needed conversation, reconciliation, reconnecting, and in the end, Dodge and Penny decide to spend their last few days together. And the movie ends, spoiler alert, the world ends. The movie ends with Dodge and Penny laying in bed together, speaking words of gratitude to each other for the time that they had. 
Some words of saying, we wish that we had met, I wish I had met you earlier, but still gratitude for the time that they had. Then the, the screen fades to white as the world ends. It is a, a truly, I think, beautiful movie. It's not your typical sort of disaster apocalypse movie. It's not, there's never a, a shot of Matilda the asteroid headed towards Earth because that's not the focus of the movie. The focus of the movie is what do human beings do when faced with finitude, when faced with the fact that they are mortal. And again, we see all of these different responses, despair, nihilism, hedonism, doomsday prepping. We see some people who continue on to do their responsibilities. Sort of the running joke throughout the movie is the fact that Dodge's housekeeper keeps showing up to his house. And Dodge keeps saying, go home. And she says, I'll see you next week, Mr. Dodge. Even the day before the apocalypse, I'll see you next week, Mr. Dodge. But here amidst all of that are these two shining examples, Dodge and Penny, who in the face of finitude, in the face of mortality, find that which truly matters. They fall in love, they, they raise a dog together, they have these experiences, these much-needed conversations. Death has this way of throwing them back into life, seeking that which truly matters. I think if we were faced with the same question of the characters in this movie, if we had three weeks left to live, what would you do? How you answer that question would reveal what is truly important to you, what matters to you. I think about the, the musicians on the board of the Titanic, when, when amidst all of the chaos of people trying to board the boats, trying to get to safety, and they know they're not going to make it, what do they do with the time they have left? They play music, they play hymns offering beauty and peace and calm amidst the chaos of that situation. The great reformer Martin Luther was asked one time, what would you do if you knew that the world was ending tomorrow? And he said, I would plant an apple tree today. I think about one of the pastors I knew who every, at the end of every one of his services, his benediction was, life is short and we have but little time to gladden the hearts of those who travel with us, so let us be quick to love and make haste to be kind. Life is short. We have but little time, so let us live with an urgency towards love and towards kindness. We have but little time to work for justice and peace in the world, so let us seize those opportunities, those moments that come in front of us. Some of the best advice I once heard from somebody was on TikTok, and he said, life is too short to not look as cool as you want right now. Look as cool as you want. Be as cool as you want because life is short. Enjoy what is in front of you. Don't miss out on the moments of beauty and, the, and wonder that are right in front of you because those are God's gift to you. Yes, we are mortal, finite beings, but the presence of that mortality has this way of throwing us back into life, revealing to us what is truly important. And I know that Kohelet is a skeptic, but I'm not. That when our lives are over, when we have finished the race that is in front of us, my trust and my hope is that the God who held us up all the days of our lives continues to hold us in love and grace into eternity. Thanks be to God. Amen.